Hi, and welcome to the Itanium Solutions Alliance Innovation Contest podcast series. I'm your host, Brad Redderson of Stranova.com, and throughout this series, we'll be talking with winners of the contest who demonstrated the most innovative uses of Itanium-based computing in each of three areas, humanitarian impact, enterprise business applications, and entrepreneurial innovation. The winners were selected from many submissions representing diverse applications of mission-critical and high-performance computing from around the world. In our current podcast, we're looking into how Itanium proved to be a critical key to allowing Secure64, a startup working at the most innovative edge of computer technology, to create a breakthrough product line and become the winner in this year's Entrepreneurial Innovation category. Secure64 Software Corporation was founded to solve one of modern computing's biggest challenges, how to build a high-performance operating system for DNS servers that can simultaneously support the rapid response needs of Internet-dependent businesses while protecting them against ever more aggressive and malicious denial-of-service attacks. Secure64 solved that challenge with the recent release of their Source T micro-operating system, a unique OS with the only built-in denial-of-service protection in the business, and their trademarked, genuinely secure, high-performance computing environment, which in turn leverages heavily on the unique integrated security and performance features of the Intel Itanium II architecture. The result is a system solution that is invulnerable to compromise from rootkits and malware, and yet, based on Secure64's testing, still provides the highest authoritative DNS performance in the world at over 100,000 queries per second. To learn more about this, we're pleased to have Dr. Bill Worley, Secure64's Vice President, Chief Technology Officer, and Director, as our guest in today's podcast. And listen close. You're about to hear him present a mini masterclass in how to think through innovating in a true leading-edge startup. Bill, well, thanks for joining us on today's podcast. Oh, we're very happy to have the opportunity. Well, first off, I want to congratulate you and the team at Secure64 for winning the Itanium Solutions Alliance's first-ever innovation contest in the entrepreneurial innovation category. It is quite an accomplishment. Well, thank you very much. We're very honored and pleased that our product has received that kind of recognition. You know, as an entrepreneurial venture, you were, of course, simultaneously working both to develop a breakthrough product line that would appeal to your customer base and at the same time needing to select the best technology components to support your ideas. So what exactly was the unmet need your company was trying to fulfill that caused you to consider an Itanium solution in the first place? Let me start perhaps one step back. I've been thinking about secure systems for some time and saw the looming security problems that were beginning to happen as something quite serious that needed technical progress in order to be addressed. And if one looks at the trust model that was in place when today's systems were first designed and when the protocols for communicating between such systems were first designed, the trust model basically assumed these systems trusted each other. They were each basically isolated. Customers more or less knew each other. And with the advent of the Internet and having everything connected worldwide, the whole trust model changed. At this point, it became very easy for malicious bad guys of all types to begin making contact with systems which were never designed in the first place to withstand and endure those kinds of attacks. 
And what this has turned into for the poor customers is essentially a process where there's a vicious cycle going on. Customers, you know, try their best to configure their systems with not only the servers but also with protective devices around those servers that we tend to call bodyguard systems. Yet they're faced with a constant stream of patches coming out to apply band-aids to vulnerabilities that have been discovered in those systems. And they're continuously at the mercy of various security incidents that can happen as a result of new vulnerabilities being discovered in software and exploits being formulated to take advantage of those vulnerabilities. And, and the poor customers don't know when they're going to get hit with these, don't know when they're going to have to hustle and try to diagnose and patch a problem. And it's a vicious cycle. In order to break out of this vicious cycle, fundamental advances seem clearly needed in the way systems were designed and structured, assuming from the outset a trust model that fits today's circumstances. In order to provide technology that really could cope with this level of malice and this change trust model, the capabilities of machines to structure themselves to provide the necessary isolation and protection becomes more important than ever. And in looking at these properties that were required, we concluded that there were a basic set of properties that such a system really would have to have in order to stand up to the kinds of attacks it would have to endure. And particularly, we've coined the term genuinely secure system. And what this term really means is it's not a marketing term. Rather, it means a specific set of strong security properties. Our website has a paper that discusses these properties. I elaborate a little bit in what I talk, but just briefly, let's summarize the kinds of properties that I'm talking about. First of all, one needs a fully authenticated boot process so that every time a system comes up, the customer can be absolutely confident that the software that is there is precisely the software that's supposed to be there. There's nothing else that's been injected. There's no malware or other viruses or anything else that's put in an appearance. So the first property is essential that whenever a system comes up, the software is absolutely correct. It's all there, and nothing's there that shouldn't be. Second property is that as one looks at the structure of the system, there's a minimal amount of code that executes at the highest privilege level of the machine. In today's machines, code running at the highest privilege level of the machine has no protection whatsoever. It can do whatever it wants to the hardware. And what we have in today's system as they have evolved are enormous amounts of code that execute at this highest privilege level. All of these codes doing various functions like operating systems kernels, virtual machine managers, I.O. drivers, parts of specific subsystems cohabit in the memory addressability region. And any one of them can tweak the machine or modify its state in uncontrollable and, and unprotected ways. And having this level of complexity led to a situation where the complexity is beyond anyone's ability to understand what's really going on. The second property is that we have a very minimum amount of code running at this level. And in fact, in our system design, only a few thousand lines of code in total run at this level. A third capability that we needed is that it's got to be possible to control a system and make sure that only certain authorized pieces of software are allowed to call mechanisms that modify the hardware state of the machine. What was done in earlier systems was to 
structure the system so that anything that ran in the supervisor privilege of the machine well, would simply execute privileged instructions to change the state of the machine. If one adopts an approach that minimizes the amount of code that can make such modifications to the state of the machine, then it becomes as a second order need essential to have properties that can assure only authorized people can call and affect those changes to the mechanism. So we need something we call trusted calls or authenticated calls. The next property is that it's got to be possible to eliminate all code injection into the system, whether in disk or memory. Systems should not be sitting there with vulnerable landing sites for malware and other viruses to arrive in the system. In today's systems, disks are unprotected. Anyone who you know has physical access to those can change the code that's sitting on the disks. Viruses or other malware that's able to penetrate the system through one vulnerability in either the system or applications can make such modifications. And the properties that a system needs to be genuinely secure is such modifications simply are not possible. And it is technically possible to achieve that. The next property that we knew had to be there is that it had to be possible to have very fine-grained and highly dynamic control over access to particular areas of memory. Many of the things that a secure system is going to have to do require cryptographic techniques. And nearly all these cryptographic techniques require secret keys or some other kinds of secret information or random information in order to function. Such information has to reside in the system in a place and in a form that can be easily accessed by the codes that are authorized to manipulate it, but completely protected from codes that are not so authorized. And if one looks at the protection model in today's systems, it's essentially an over 40-year-old model that was you know, first introduced by IBM in their mainframe architecture in the 1960s. It's been combined with addressability controls, which give one another fairly static level of protection. But if one is looking for a protection mechanism that can permit data to be accessible at the cost of only a few cycles, then used, and then protective again at the cost of a few cycles, that kind of mechanism is very essential. We call this the ability to compartmentalize memory and essentially organize memory into very fine-grained chunks so that the access can be carefully controlled. Another property that we had to have is that as a program is executing, all the critical control information for that program had to be isolated and protected by the hardware itself. Many vulnerabilities and attack vectors into systems have come through modification of such control information. And it's got to be possible in the hardware to isolate it. The next property that we needed was that it should be possible to have all information in the system that is stored on disk, both encrypted and protected by authentication uh, values so that one can be sure that the integrity of that data, and this applies both the code and the information data, is assured, and that its second property of confidentiality is guaranteed by virtue of being encrypted. So having everything encrypted and integrity protected on disk is another property. The next property is that the capabilities in a system that talk to the network need to have the ability integrated into themselves to protect themselves from the kinds of attack that comes from a network. It shouldn't be necessary for a customer to surround server systems with other bodyguard systems just to protect the input stream. That ought to be built in. 
And finally, improvements are needed in the way users are authorized to the systems. But this set of properties were those properties that we viewed as being essential. And in examining the various hardware architectures that exist today, only the Itanium architecture contains the necessary protections built into the architecture to achieve these properties. In our opinion, no other architecture that exists is capable of supporting these properties. You certainly had a number of choices you were considering in this, and you've indicated that the Itanium has certainly unique properties. Can you say a little bit more about that, and what is it about the nature of the Itanium design that enabled this solution versus, as you said, nothing else out there to be able to make this possible? Certainly. The architecture of Itanium contains some very unique things in its memory mapping. In particular, it has a capability known as a protection key. This permits a unique 24-bit value to be assigned to any arbitrary subset of pages. And the architecture specifies that if a matching value exists in the control state of the machine, then access to that page is possible. Uh, if a matching value does not exist in the control state of the machine, access is not possible, regardless of what your privilege level is or regardless of whether you can address the data or not. This is a unique thing in Itanium and, and enables compartmentalized memory. A second feature that Itanium has that's quite unique is the ability to authorize access to memory in all possible combinations of read, write, and execute privilege. And this turns out to be crucial for implementing authenticated calls. It's necessary to lock code down so that it can be executed, but no one can read the code or otherwise find out what its contents are. A third thing that Itanium has is the register save engine, which permits all the sensitive control information while a program is running to be retained in memory only in a place that no one else can get their hands on it. These are three examples of things Itanium has that are quite unique that are unmatched in any other architecture. We certainly, we've certainly been encouraged by a lot of investors we talked to, you know, to consider using other architectures. But the answer we have to offer is, at the present time, none of the other architectures provides the technical bases for achieving the properties that I described earlier. You know, very impressive, and you've leveraged them well. I'm interested in, were there any surprises along the way once you selected Itanium and as you were designing going forward? Design of our system is much, much simpler than today's general purpose operating systems. And we knew that this type of design would have significantly lower overheads than one finds in today's general purpose operating systems. But the pleasant surprise was that we found the magnitude of that performance increase to be much bigger than we thought. It's well over a factor two in most apples and apples comparisons. For this reason, our product is able to achieve, even with a single titanium dual core processor, a throughput rate for handling DNS transactions that's faster than any other competitor offers at the present time, over 100,000 queries per second. From the time that you chose the solution, basically had your plan of attack in place, to the point of the product being out in the market, how long did the overall project take from beginning to end? We really began seriously to staff up to build our product in about March of 05. And as you know, we announced the product on the 19th of March this year. So 
it took about two years once we understood the basic technology needs to productize the product that we presently have offered in the marketplace. Well, and it sounds like the response has been very, very strong, both from the benchmark testing that people have been doing before the formal announcement as well as since then. How has the performance been doing, and how are the orders doing? We have very high interest from a number of quarters, and we're keeping very busy right now talking to all the people that see value for them in the products and in the basic technology. You know, the evaluation by independent testing laboratories, I think, have produced results that we found some customers are a little bit skeptical about believing that they're really real, but we've actually been able to show this with actual demonstrations to customers. So there's a very high degree of interest, and sales cycles look like they're ramping up very well. Well, and I know that they are just beginning to roll these things out, so a lot of good stories coming in the future. I guess for our listening audience, many of which are facing either applications challenges that perhaps your products can solve, as well as other Itanium developers or potential Itanium developers, are there any thoughts that you might want to pass on or guidance as to what they might want to be considering as they are looking at potential solutions in the high-performance computing area? Well, I can talk to you about a couple of specific instances in interacting with customers. One ISP customer showed us in his installation his DNS system, and then when he opened the rack, showed us next to it a much more expensive firewall system that he found necessary to incorporate in order to try to protect the DNS system. Our product makes such an additional box unnecessary. In fact, we've just completed a market survey of about 500 respondents, and in this survey, 40% of these respondents replied that they did find it necessary to buy protective bodyguard systems just to protect their DNS system. So we think there's a lot of customers who are now having to buy multiple boxes that will only have to buy one box. Well, since many of our listeners may become customers of yours, where might they be able to reach you on the Internet for further information about your company? Our website is www.secure64.com, and on that website is all the information about our product, about our company, about the means to make contact with us, request white papers, and other information. Okay, well, I'll encourage our listeners to go check that out. It is a great website. I've been to it and gone through some of the information, so encourage it. Well, last but not least, we're wondering what you all might be planning to do with the $50,000 that you won as a result of winning this award. Well, as I'm sure you can appreciate, we're a very small company, a startup company. Our focus for the last couple of years has been on the product development, and that's continuing as we continue to enhance the product and increase its functionality. And now, in addition, we're reaching out into the market. So all financial resources are very helpful on both these fronts. I absolutely can appreciate that. Well, Bill, thanks very much for joining us for this podcast. Appreciate it. It's been my pleasure, and thank you. Thanks again for joining us for today's interview. If you'd like more information on the podcast you just heard, as well as others in this series, please visit us at www.itaniumsolutionsalliance.org.